and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 6. I'm Nick Dixon and we have a bumper show today, so many stories to tackle. Kanye West gets a bit carried away, Westminster introduces segregation and John Cleese joins GB News and gets called a gammony old bigot. We'll be chatting about all that, speaking to Noah to find out if we're going to have nuclear war, as well as our usual features, pros and cons, and everybody's favourite, peak woke. And as ever, I'm joined by... Another gammony old bigot to my slightly younger gammony bigot. I fell apart in my own intro. It's, of course, Toby Gammon Young. Hi, Nick. Last week I was the PayPal slayer himself. Now I'm a gammony old bigot. How the mighty have fallen. (laughs) You're up one week and down the next. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry about that, Toby. I think we're all in the gammony gammony old bigot bracket. That was a reply that um, John Cleese got. Or someone got to one of our videos about John Cleese, because that is the big news. I'm sure you've seen it. He's joining GB News. He's doing a a show with Andrew Doyle producing. Some people don't realize. Let's do our usual Andrew Doyle praise section right at the top. Andrew Doyle also. (laughs) We love Andrew. He's also behind the scenes producing things. He's executive producer on our show, Headliners. He's producing a brand new show with John Cleese. Maybe Cleese will show up on some other shows. We don't know. Let's, Let's see how that goes. And of course, the internet went mad calling him basically Hitler. Femi's was a great one. Femi said, I loved, I adore you. I adored your comedy, your dark comedy about Hitler where the Nazis were the bad guys, but now you're joining the far right. <laughs> basically, literally Hitler. Daniela <laughs> Nudge, that pointless person on Twitter said, I, I, I'm just going to, I never watched GB News. Why is everyone on about it? So she told us all how she's going to ignore it. And loads of people just piped up with nonsense. I was most interested in that, to be honest, because actually Cleese being at the channel doesn't necessarily help me that much because as a performer, really famous performers coming in to take my job is not something I'm unambiguously thrilled about, although I am overall, my rational being is thrilled about it. So it's, we haven't actually heard any details, I don't think, about the show he's going to host, but is it, is it in fact headliners? Are you going to be ousted for please? <laughs> we may, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say, he may make an appearance on certain other shows, let's see. But this funny thing happens with the producers where... For them, it's a massive boon, unambiguously joyful, you know, situation where they say, oh, we're getting this massive person and they don't always tell you who it is. And then then we found out. But for me, I'm always like, yeah, great. I feel a bit like Paul Giamatti at the end of Sideways when his, his ex-wife is, is pregnant with his, her new boyfriend. He's like, that's, that's just great. That's great. He's like, <laughs> not quite that level because, of course, it is good for the channel. It does build us overall. It could help me in a broad way. And, of course, I love John Cleese. But part of you is like... They say things like, oh, we're getting these great guests and we'll take the show to the next level. I'm thinking, I named the show. I was there at the start when it was all field on the first episode. And it's like, you know, am I just going to be ousted by these massive stars? But it is good overall. What was your thought? But it, on yeah, it, he's, I mean, it, it, GB News, in spite of the, you know, endless onslaught from various wokesters, even, you know, old fashioned liberals like David Aronovich and Matthew Sweet, nonetheless, these fairly big names seemingly quite respectable people like John Cleese, Michael Portillo, are joining the channel, um, taking on shows. So, you know, um, the effort to toxify the brand, I don't think, has been particularly successful. So it's good news. No, the effort to boycott advertisers was quite successful by these mad people like Hope Not Hate. And that's been a big problem. But in terms of people doing it, yeah, because if the BBC are going to be stupid enough not to book David Starkey, our greatest living historian. And if they're not going to book Peter Hitchens, one of our greatest journalists, then we're just going to we're just going to snap them up. And the same with John Cleese. And eventually there'll be so many people on GB, the far right GB, that the entire universe will just be far right and there'll be no one outside of it. 
It is like, you know, it's like the cancel channel, isn't it? I mean, it, 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 people who've been cancelled by the BBC, uh, like me, like Cleese, who's, you know, famously they what they deleted an episode of Faulty Towers um, because the major um, uses a racial epithet or something. And anyway, Cleese was furious about that. But, you know, people the BBC has, de- you know, decided are too far outside the Overton window for the Beeb are now kind of ending up on um, GB News. Uh, so it's great news because, you know, as we know, the cancelled are on the whole more interested and talented and funny than the non-cancelled. David Stark is a great example. I mean, I think, you know, his his coverage of um, the Queen's funeral was superior to the coverage on any other channel because he just is by a huge distance the best broadcaster when it comes to anything royal related. Yeah, his knowledge is just is just so deep compared to anyone else. And yeah, it's a good point, Toby. And I'm actually in, my, in that camp myself, not because of my mini cancellation, which you get incensed about when I bring it up, <laughs> but because actually I never had a chance to get on the BBC. I couldn't even get an agent. Well, I had one agent at one point, but it got to a point in comedy where you couldn't even get an agent if you were a straight white man and so on, with, of course, some exceptions. But I was never going to get on the BBC, people like me and Leo Kirst. So we, yeah, we were sort of all cancelled by default already and we had to go across there and you're right you're on the channel so yeah we're just gonna it's like a kind of cancelled heaven i've got i've got a good strap line for gb news this could be their advertising slogan it begins in the future everyone will be cancelled for 15 minutes gb news tomorrow's news today (laughs) brilliant you should have your own show toby i'm sure we can work on that um so in oh yeah and by the way i've just written a an article on substack about John Cleese, which it's free. You can check it out now, guys. I've started this Substack. Basically, what happened is Toby told me you can make a lot of money on Substack. I went home and immediately started one uh, because I need money. Not in a kind of grifter way, milking it, because the other day I had £87 in my account. So maybe I am a grifter, but a very bad one. Uh, but I thought I'll, writing is one of my great strengths. Why don't I write on Substack? Brilliant idea from Toby. I'd set one up before, but never started. So I've immediately bashed out several articles. They're very good. I'm not when I say bashed out, they're high quality. And uh, one of them is about Andrew Tate. But one of them today, the free one is about John Cleese. What is it? Nick Dixon, Substack. Dot, oh, yeah, Nick Dixon, one word, dot substack dot com. Check that out. Free article. And I think the Daily Skeptic are going to put it up as well. Is that right? Well, I thought it was so good that, uh, yeah, we were going to republish it on the Daily Skeptic and steer people towards your Substack. So hopefully they'll subscribe. And it's now my turn to plug something on the subject of non-woke comedians. Um, I'm interviewing Jack D tomorrow. Um, it's a free speech union members only event, but it's on zoom. So if you join between now and six thirty uh, on Wednesday, you can um, come along and listen to me interview Jack D. Jack D of course was very supportive during my recent trouble with PayPal and got it in the neck from Wokesters on Twitter because of it. Anyway, fantastic comedian, comedy legend. Um, if you join the Free Speech Union between now and 6.30 tomorrow, you'll be invited to come along and listen to me, interview him, and to join the Free Speech Union, it's www.freespeechunion.org. And just click on the join button and membership starts at £2.49 a month. It's practically free. And he was also very supportive during my mini cancellation that Toby doesn't count as a cancellation, but he is an absolute legend, Jack D. So definitely check out that. And ideally, this show will just be five minutes in. We've done two adverts. It should just be (laughs) one long advert. Yeah, (laughs) we do a tiny bit of actual content at the end. Um, Let's move on then to someone else I have a Substack article about, Andrew Tate. I thought this was very interesting. Andrew Tate, 
went on the Piers Morgan show, Piers Morgan Uncensored. And it was and I wrote an article about this because I had this theory that Andrew Tate will be the first person to be truly uncancelled because he was the most Googled man on the internet. He was the most famous man on the internet, got cancelled by everything, YouTube, uh, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, everything you can name. That then created a certain amount of notoriety with hit pieces in the media. Maybe I, I don't think this is what the left have always been claiming, like, oh, you just do better. I think it's actually something a bit different where he's now been embraced by the mainstream. You normally go from the mainstream, you get cancelled like Winston Marshall from Mumford & Sons or like you, Toby. You still thrive in it, in, but more towards the fringes. You get taken out of the mainstream, as we've just said about GB News. What Tate's done has been an internet star, very much not mainstream, but loved by the internet kids and people like me as well. And then suddenly he's ended up on Piers Morgan, who is mainstream, even though talk radio is a slight alternative. And he's ended up being interviewed by Hugo Rifkin in The Times. So I, I thought I have this theory about he's kind of actually become more mainstream by getting cancelled. What do you think? Yeah, that's interesting. So he was on Talk TV on Piers Morgan's show and interviewed by Hugo Rifkind for The Times because he was cancelled not from mainstream media, but from the kind of um, alt media where he was a star. Um, but actually being cancelled, it's it sort of gone in reverse for him. So instead of moving to alt media because he was cancelled on mainstream media, it's happening in reverse. But presumably he's not going to find, he's not going to be given a column on The Times or a show on Talk TV. This is a fleeting interest and soon the MSM will forget about him. Well, I speculated they'd have a BBC One 6pm show called Top G versus Dem Hoes because his nickname's Top G and he likes to talk about hoes. I know that would be amazing. Uh, but yeah, I'm not sure. There must be a limit to how mainstream we can get. I think Hugo Rifkin was kind of setting that limit in the article. He sort of, throughout the article, he's basically saying, you know, he's quite interesting in some ways, but I hate him and he's terrible, guys. What I realised was there's a certain amount of class prejudice in the article. I mean, we're probably from quite different backgrounds, Toby, but most of my friends just enjoy Tate. You know, they just think, yeah, total legend. You know, and they don't mind what he says. Of course, we don't take it all at face value. But Hugo Rifkin kept doing this thing where he was saying, it's horrid, but... He even used the word horrid. It, it's horrid, but, you know, this is it shouldn't necessarily be cancelled. It was this funny sort of virtue signaling to the dinner party set kind of piece that, to me, I just look at it and go, what are you on about, mate? He's funny. Yeah, um, I've, 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 I've had a few run-ins with Hugo in my time. <laughs> he is sort of the voice of the liberal establishment, isn't he? He's... Um, He's uh, what James what James Dellingbaugh would call a normie journalist. Um, he's not a he's great that word in my article. He's a normie, and he's born into. Isn't his dad was a, an MP? He's sort of born into the the media world, yes. isn't it? Or, the, or the liberal media. Uh, yeah, he's one, elite. Yes, he's one of these um, progressive liberals who is himself the beneficiary of inherited privilege in every sense. <laughs> yeah, um, but his dad was a conservative, uh, which, though, right? His dad was a conservative. Yes, he was. Um, he was a he was foreign secretary under Margaret Thatcher, I think, at one point. Um, and uh, yeah, he was. Uh, um, I think quite a quite a you know, quite a decent senior conservative politician. Um, and uh, yeah, Hugo has obviously had a kind of perhaps it's a little bit perhaps it's unfair to say he's had a magic carpet ride to um, his niche <laughs> on the on the times but um certainly he, I, I don't think he could i don't think he would call his um memoir my struggle um but i think a, probably a worse offender is jay rayner jay rayner is like the kind of beta version of hugo rifkin um uh, and i've i've um he i think he said that uh 
he had a crack at me and Sarah Vine a few years ago. And, um, and I said, Jay, you know, even though you're always sniping at me, I have no doubt that in at some point in the not too distant future, you will require the free speech union services. And I will ignore I will I will um, turn a blind eye, I will manfully and graciously ignore all these all this petty sniping and leap to your aid. And he replied, Toby, um, if I ever need your aid, I'll be well and truly finished. I wouldn't even want you to pee on me if I was on fire. Something to that effect. And everyone thought, oh, burn, you know, and uh, <laughs> people thought that was a brilliant, you know, Wildian riposte. And he completely got the better of me. And I didn't, after that, engage. I did have actually this photograph that someone once sent me. Um, he did a photo shoot for The Observer once in which he tried to, I think, reproduce the cover of a Who album in which it's him naked in a bath of baked beans and um it's quite something and even though i could have retaliated by 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 posting this picture of jay naked in a baked bean bath i thought no that would be too cruel i'm gonna rise above it i'm gonna i'm gonna be the the more mature grown-up in this exchange so i didn't um but his mother of course was claire rayner famous agony aunt and he's very much um you know he's 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 fiercely anti-nepotistic and is always bringing up the fact that my father supposedly pulled strings to get me into Oxford as a sort of way of discrediting me and making me look foolish and the beneficiary of nepotism, seemingly having a blind spot to his own um, inherited privilege. He's a second generation Fleet Street byline, but he's just an unbelievably pompous twit and always has been. Um, and I dare say he will one day require the services of the Free Speech Union. And I'm just going to have to. Uh, 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 do my best to help him. Amazing. I love the way you always have history with any, everyone I mentioned. <laughs> usually quite bad. And um, I, I think he comes across terribly in that story and you come across, you know, much better showing the kind of Christian forgiveness that forgive them for they know not what they do is what you've really said. And he's just come back with this nasty reply. I don't think that works for him at all in my book, if, you know, even if they thought it was a sick burn. What I like about you, Toby, is that despite your background, which I don't know too much about anyway, but you were always a rebel. You were a punk. And now you're still a punk by being a conservative punk. My substack's called the conservative rebel. I'm obsessed with this idea. Can a conservative be a rebel? So you've, you've actually stayed sort of true to your punk spirit, whereas those lot are very establishment. Yes, I've, I've written about this, actually. Um, I, I was an anarchist when I was 14 and, um, and, and a punk had a green streak in my hair, a safety pin through my ear, bought Nevermind the Bollocks the day it came out. Um, and absolutely identified with the punk rock movement. It was just it just perfectly coincided with my own adolescent rebellion. It was like a pop culture moment that seemed to completely resonate with where I was at that particular age. It was fantastic. Great time to be 14. Um, uh, but I don't think I've moved that far. I mean, you know, I've moved from being an anarchist to the libertarian wing of the Conservative Party, which isn't a great distance to travel, whereas lots of people who describe themselves as anarchists, um, you know, became swept up by Corbyn mania and went on protests demanding, you know, the government um, take more in taxes and spend more on public services. And it's like, how do you justify enlarging the state if you're supposedly an anarchist? Whereas me, you know, a minimal state conservative, I feel like I've remained fairly true to my 14 year old self. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that, that's been my argument as well, that the, the, what, the punk ethos, and we're sort of similar in that way, despite our very different backgrounds, we have this ethos and not that I was in the punk movement literally or anything, I was too young, but but John Lydon, of course, of the Sex Pistols, famously backed Brexit and also backed Trump. 
because that had become the punk thing to do. Whereas if you're Stuart Lee, you're frozen in time and if thinking you can just have the exact same views, even though you've become the establishment. Whereas uh, John Lydon's smart enough to realize you have to adapt. He then even backed Jacob Rees-Mogg recently, <laughs> the ultimate kind of, maybe that's jumping <laughs> the shark a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> yes, it's, 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 it's a source of um, ongoing mystery as to why people who, you know, when they were students, perhaps had a kind of whiff of rebelliousness about them, but are now absolutely squarely in the centre of the establishment, at least in their, you know, uh, political and philosophical beliefs. And um, uh, yes, Stuart Lee is a great example. He, 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 I mean, but what, what's mysterious is that they imagine their effect, their whole kind of attack is as if they were absolutely on the fringe, surrounded by powerful enemies, and they're still fighting the good fight on behalf of the outsiders. Whereas they're not outsiders anymore. They are smack bang in the middle of the kind of inner sanctum. And uh, and yet that has they, ha- they haven't in any way adapted their style. It's as though that they could. And, and, and it's always I've always kind of been a bit puzzled. I mean, do they actually think that they are still rebels? They are still anti-establishment outsiders. Has it not kind of has the penny not dropped? Do they not look around and see? Oh, look, there's the director general of the BBC at, at my dinner table. You know, oh, there's the Archbishop of Canterbury on my doorstep waiting to give me a birthday card. Do they not kind of realise <laughs> that they're now in the establishment? Do they? I mean, what's going on there? Is it a blind spot? Is it a pretense? Is it hypocrisy? What's your read? You know, you know Stuart Lee better than me. Well, I'm worried that I'm going to repeat myself from a previous episode where because we have a different sections. One of them is praise Andrew Doyle. One of them is attack Stuart Lee. Although we, <laughs> we we could end up on his list his yearly list which I've already been on by default by being on GB News but I've never been on by name so that's the next level but he has a yearly Stalin-esque list of people who should be deleted and um, yeah so my take is what I, really what I said the other time exactly what you said he just hasn't adapted to and Daniel Kitson similar but Stuart Lee just hasn't adapted to being the mainstream to being the establishment to the point where like I said he was at, he was at Leicester Square Theatre saying talking as if he was a failure on a sold out multiple day run at the Leicester Square Theatre. There was probably even just a warm-up run as well. So, yeah, it doesn't get much more successful in comedy than Stuart Lee. Um, maybe we should move on to someone else who's a, a controversial figure. I mean, is Kanye West. That's my link there. From Stuart Lee to Kanye West, who I was preparing to talk about in a very positive way because he was running for president in 2024. He, he hinted. He, was, um, he did a great interview with Tucker Carlson where he said, that the media have a largely godless agenda, correct. You know, he was coming out with pro-life. He was coming out swinging. Great to see. He's kind of messed up and let us down a little bit by having a pop at the Jews, which is never good. He said, I'm a bit sleepy tonight, but when I wake up, I'm going DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. It's like, okay. Can't, I mean, to be fair, he didn't go DEFCON 1. DEFCON 3 is only in the middle. 1 is the highest, 5 is the lowest. So he could have got... He's reserving DEFCON 1 for probably whoever Kim's next boyfriend is, but he, it, it's not... Do you, do you think he realised that, though? Maybe he thought DEFCON 3 was actually the highest you can go. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But it wasn't good. I and mean, I'm not trying to make light of anti-Semitism, guys. I, obviously, it's terrible. Any anti-Semitism is always awful and weird. I even wrote an article condemning it when Ice Cube did it and Chelsea Handler, when they all started praising Louis Farrakhan... I thought it was pathetic. What is quite interesting, though, Toby, we can comment on the anti-Semitism, but as a side point, is he had just released that that new clothing line saying white lives matter. And he was so hated for that. He was 
liked by certain people, but by the establishment, he it was said he was racist even, and it was dangerous and disgusting and all these things. So it's quite interesting to me, whereas now, at least when you're anti-Semitic, people will rally. He did get suspended from Twitter, I believe, and Instagram. They will say, this is, this is wrong, this is terrible, we're suspending you. Whereas if you say that white people are okay, you will be hated just for that. So there is a gulf between anti-Semitism is, is awful, but at least some people will acknowledge that. Whereas if you, <laughs> if you actually say that white people perhaps deserve to live or something... That's evil. So I thought it was quite interesting. Yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, I mean, um, and actually, his anti-Semitic comments received less attention in the kind of woke media than his White Lives Matter T-shirt. Um, uh, and it was as though almost it, it was like a kind of it was almost like a bait and switch operation, wasn't it? Sort of, he comes out, he wears the White Lives Matter T-shirt, he does an interview with Tucker. He's, he wears the lanyard with the, um, you know, um, uh, picture of the unborn baby on it. Um, he's very pro-life, um, hints that he's going to run for president in 2024. Um, and, uh, you know, and he's immediately embraced by our side in the culture war. And then he says the most appalling anti-Semitic things. And it's as though it was almost designed to embarrass us, to reveal our kind of hidden kind of attachment to the protocols of the elders of Zion or something. Um, it's like it's caricature of what the woke accuse the anti-woke of being. You know, they're all, you know, you scratch, scratch the surface of, of a member of the kind of anti-woke coalition and you'll find an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. And lo and behold, um, uh, as soon as we'd embrace this new um, uh, uh standard bearer um he turns out to be um anti-semitic so that was that was really disappointing and i guess we should perhaps be a little bit more careful <laughs> next time when uh, you know if um if if p diddy for instance um <laughs> suddenly embraces our cause we should probably treat with caution i don't think diddy would uh, and he's very establishment but it, yeah i mean look kanye then added um the funny thing is i actually can't be anti-semitic because black people are actually jew also I don't know if this is some sort of black Hebrew Israelites, Israelites thing that's a bit beyond me, you know, one of those theories. But he's saying they're actually they're actually Jews. I don't know if he means metaphorically or literally. He thought he could get out of it with that, but it didn't seem to really work. Yeah, I mean, it, it did. It, the other disappointing thing about it was that you know, as he himself said, lots of people dismissed his White Lives Matter stunt by saying, "Well, he's crazy. He's off his meds. You can't take anything he says seriously." just ignore him. And um, and his defense was, yeah, well, they always dismiss anyone who challenges woke dogma by claiming they're, you know, if, particularly if they're black, they just say they're crazy or they're off their meds. Um, and it turns out he might actually have been off his meds because what other excuse does he have um, for for tweeting what he tweeted in the middle of the night? I mean, it was, it was, it was a very odd thing for him to do. At least yeah. he didn't come up with the, my Twitter account was hijacked excuse, Hacked. which, which never, never washes. Yes, well, I'm sure this one will, there'll be more to this saga later. Let, maybe let's move on for now to um, mermaids. I hate talking about mermaids, full disclosure, because I just find it all so creepy. I almost don't want to look into it, but it is important. They had this guy, Jacob Breslow, who had turned out had spoken at a conference uh, for self-identified individuals who are sexually attracted to children. There's other words for them. I don't know which ones we're allowed to use on this podcast, but... And someone had tried to, um, I saw someone tweet about this, trying to say, it was 10 years ago, guys, as if like, 
oh, you, I thought you guys didn't believe in cancel culture. It's like, yeah, if you're a, if you're a pedo, uh, I don't really care that it's 10 years ago. And then there was a follow-up with this very strange guy, Darren Mew. He seems pretty strange. He actually, he somehow ended up in my inbox, not him literally, but I followed Glinner, Graham Linehan, actually by mistake on Substack, but it is worth looking at his Substack. So then into my inbox suddenly came penises from this guy, Darren Mew, who's, who's a guy who was a digital engagement officer at Mermaids, and he'd, seen, he'd done some very pornographic pictures. Mermaids are just having a bit of a nightmare, Toby. Yes, and the um, what's interesting about this is that their difficulties stem from mermaids trying to destroy the LGB alliance. The LGB alliance um, uh, was started by some of the uh, original founders of Stonewall, um, objecting to Stonewall's embrace of the um, trans rights activists' agenda. Um, so it's 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 they've taken the T off, and it's just LGB rights that they're that they campaign for. Um, and um, you know, it's it's a very respectable charity, um, uh, and uh, is often attacked by trans rights activists for obvious reasons. Um, and um, mermaids um, complained about the LGB Alliance to the Charity Commission and tried to get them struck off as a charity, saying they're not really a charity. They're a political campaigning organization. They're transphobic. They only exist to um, uh, deny trans people their rights. Um, all nonsense. And um, uh, and I think the Charity Commission decided not to, um, uh, you know, investigate the LGB Alliance. And then Mermaids took, I think, the Charity Commission to court um, to complain that they hadn't followed up their original complaint against the LGB alliance, and they lost that case. And then people began to then look at mermaids in more detail and who their trustees are, who their staff are, where they're being funded, what they actually do, and lots and lots of stories about them, none of which are good, have started tumbling out. Um, and uh, it looks like they're in quite a bit of trouble. And um, so far, neither... The uh, trustee, who I think now has resigned, who spoke at the conference for um, what's the euphemism for um, that they like to use? Minor attracted persons. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, uh, nor, nor this chap, um, Darren Mew, um, have reached out to the Free Speech Union for help. Um, but um, <laughs> if either are listening, <laughs> we would we would see what we could do for you if if you did because. Um, uh, you know, we don't think anyone should be cancelled. But, but uh, I mean, this guy who addressed who'll be the... first, them or Jay Rayner? That's my question. Yeah, I, I think probably. Yeah, I don't suppose either, either, either any of them will be coming beating up after our door anytime soon. All right, so that's mermaids. It seems like a good time to just briefly mention a similar ish story in a way, in my mind anyway, which is the SNP Equalities Officer Cameron Downing, twenty three, who said he wanted to beat the f out of some turfs and transphobes and he, he also had a similar uh, quote about i effing hate turfs and transphobes with such a passion they make me want to scream in all caps uh, so these are the kind of people that the smp are employing for to be in charge of equality it's odd isn't it because you would i mean you would think that the people who applied for the job of equalities officer and were shortlisted by the smp would be you know nice people people who cared about equality and wanted to help the disadvantaged and level up and the rest of it um but actually you know equalities being 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 an equalities officer 
I'd actually, probably this guy isn't that unusual for the sorts of people that actually fill these roles. Um, they are filled with a kind of bilious rage against the non-woke, including, you know, gender critical feminists, particularly gender critical feminists. I mean, one thing I've spoken to um, our friend, the great Andrew Doyle about this, why is it that um, of all the people the woke rage about, um, you know, middle-aged lesbians seem to be seem to get their goat more than anyone else you know you and i it's water off the duck's back they don't really care we probably i don't think that we can really even irritate them anymore let alone drive them completely bonkers but you know a a a woman a middle-aged feminist old school feminist walking into an lgb alliance event you know people like this smp equalities office you just want to tear them limb from limb it's like a red rag and i think the part of the explanation is that um it's just they they think women particularly middle-aged women are just softer targets more vulnerable targets and for all their talk about being you know compassionate and decent people who want to help the vulnerable and the most disadvantaged you know, it's more attractive for them to attack a defenceless middle-aged woman than it is, you know, a street fighter like you or me, Nick. <laughs> you know what? I think there's, there's actually something in that. I, I, during the COVID madness, people kept tweeting about, oh, I'm, I got shouted at for not wearing a mask, et cetera, et cetera. I wore a mask a total of three times, once in my friend's comedy club, because the police kept checking. It was very early on. He was worried about getting shut down. So as a courtesy to him, I wore it because I don't want to destroy small businesses. Um, then I wore it twice in the GP when I really couldn't get out of it. But I didn't wear it in hospital. I didn't wear it on a train. I didn't wear it on a tube. I never wore it in a supermarket. I wore it three times total. There was all kinds of places. You wouldn't believe why I could not wear a mask. I mean, NHS hospital, I went to a private place, didn't wear a mask. But people kept tweeting. And I noticed a lot of them were women, often middle-aged women, saying people have attacked me for not wearing my mask. And I was thinking, why don't they attack me? And I was just thinking, I just must look like I'm about to crack and just <laughs> shoot everyone in a post office but i think it might have simply been that i was a man who mm. could possibly and punch it, you and i do do a lot of bench press go on it, yeah and it's the same with road rage as well i mean i've i don't think i've ever been the victim of a road rage incident but my wife um has she just attracts them like you know these crazy angry gammon van drivers like bees to the honeypot i mean yeah she, she, she's often she, at one stage she was actually followed she, she's i don't know she, she she turned left without indicating or something and this guy in a you know in a in a ford mondeo behind her went completely nuts and followed her home um and uh, she couldn't get out of the car because every time she did this guy would leap out of his car and she had to close the door again and he would start banging on the windows and he refused to go she had to call the police and the police had to kind of you know escort him from the scene it was uh, absolutely bizarre but it, it happened to her quite often and i think you know the stats bear this out women are much more likely to be the victims of road rage than men um which suggests it's not kind of that they're triggered and they lose control it's uh, rage is probably the wrong word because you know if it's just a matter of being triggered and losing their tempers because someone, you know, um, does something non-woke or um, turns right without indicating, why isn't it completely random as to who they get angry with? It's not. They tend to be, they tend to, you know, they're only triggered. They only lose their temper when it's someone, you know, much more vulnerable than them, someone they think they can beat in a fight in case it gets out of hand, um, which suggests it's a quite selective and there's a degree of calculation going on, doesn't it? Yes, I, I always think that. And they're cowards and bullies. One extra point, though, is that these mad people attacking the so-called turfs is that maybe it's because they're meant to be on their side. Feminists are meant to be 
on the left or whatever, and they've they've abandoned them. Do you think it's also that? Well, I suppose so, but you know, you, you don't get them attacking. You, do, do they? Do they? Do they kind of lash out at kind of young, you know, people like um, Zuby, you know, for 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 being black but non woke because they should be more compliant with woke ideology because of the color of their skin. Um, you know, so am I am I thinking of the right guy? Have I got the right name there, Zuby. No, you've got the right guy. I was just thinking that oh, yeah. they maybe they do because there was that movie in America, Uncle Tom, about you know trying to be a black conservative. Mm, so maybe there's an element with with black people as well. Anyone they think should be on their team. Joe Biden saying you ain't black. Maybe it's similar. I don't know. Well, but, but they don't. But 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 that can't be the excuse as to why they're why they are they're more likely to attack you know, turfs than they are, you know, you and me, because by the same token, if that was the reason, they'd be more likely to attack people like Zuby. But I don't think they do because he's, you know, able to take care of himself. Yeah, could be that. Should we just briefly touch on PayPal before we go to all our various other exciting features? Because there has been an update. I believe you mentioned it on your other podcast. I don't want to dwell on it. But PayPal, and we know we, we destroyed PayPal recently with the Free Speech Union and Daily Skeptic and all your help. But then they came out with this crazy policy, somehow was leaked, where they would charge you $2,500 for naughty opinions, which I can't even understand how it even happened, how it was even leaked or how they even had the idea. And most people I know with the PayPal have about 19 quid in there. I mean, it must be because they're used, they're used to dealing with like massive Silicon Valley accounts. Or they took the mean of all their accounts and it came to 2005. Like, how did they think people could afford that? And then second question, there's been some kind of update you mentioned just before we went on air. Yeah. Um, well, the update before we came on air is that um, yesterday when PayPal, when Wall Street opened, PayPal's stock price quickly declined by about 6%. And when trading opened this morning, Tuesday, um, it declined again. And um, I think PayPal at its peak last week was selling at about $95 a share. And at its low point today, it was $80 a share. So that's a fall of almost 17% and about $18 billion lost in its market cap. So PayPal does seem to be in in a little bit of trouble. And the reason is that it, as you say, it introduced... One clarification, I only discovered this when I started writing, I've written about it for The Spectator this week. Um, PayPal has always granted itself the right um, to take $2,500 from the accounts it closes um, because the owners are guilty of violating its acceptable use policy. So that isn't new. What's new is that they've increased the list of sins they're entitled to help themselves to two and a half thousand dollars to um, in response if you commit any of them um, they've increased them they, they list as they said you know if you say anything um, that upsets people with protected characteristics and they want on to list the characteristics or if you traffic in misinformation we can fine you two and a half thousand dollars but granting themselves the right to help themselves to people's deposits that's not new what's new is that they've um, extended the number of sins they can fine you for. And they've wrote back, so, so as soon as this became common knowledge, um, and I think it was slightly misunderstood, people thought, oh my God, PayPal have, 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 have just changed their policy so they can help yourself to help themselves to your deposits and freaked out and started closing their accounts. And PayPal's kind of damage control is, no, no, we've always been able to do this, which isn't exactly a great argument for remaining a customer. So it didn't 
do much, I don't think, to stem the tide of, you know, uh, people exiting their accounts. Um, but one thing they, they've clarified to say, um, we released that policy update in error. But the only thing they've, they've said was an error was um, adding misinformation to the various sins you can be fined two and a half thousand dollars for. They've left all the other additional sins there. So you can even if you know, if you if you're still a PayPal customer, if you're foolish enough not to have closed your accounts, um, they can still fine you two thousand five hundred dollars in what they call liquidated damages. This is after they've liquidated your account. Um, uh, if you if you say something, and this is one of the words they use in their new updated um, uh, uh, acceptable use policy, if you say something objectionable, so if you say something that a member of a protected group, i.e. a transgendered person, finds objectionable, PayPal can close your account with no notice and help themselves to £2,500, uh, if, if there's, sorry, $2,500, if, if there's that much in it. Um, and you say, well, who's to say what's objectionable and what isn't? Well, PayPal say in their policy, um, we'll decide this. This will be at our, quote unquote, sole discretion, unquote. So, you know, it, it's a good example, I think, of um, of woke overreach. Um, and and the, the irony is that the woke CEO of PayPal, Dan Shulman, um, appeared at Davos um, in January of this year and gave a talk entitled something like "What Separates Great Companies from, What Separates Good Companies from Great Companies Trust." Um, and to build trust, according to him, it's not enough to deliver a great product. You've also got to um, have good values. You've got to want to improve the world. You've, you've effectively got to have a kind of social justice agenda. And it's been in pursuit of this agenda, supposedly, which builds trust in brands like PayPal, that actually hundreds of thousands of customers are rapidly losing trust in the brand because they've become aware that if they say something, some woke pen pusher at PayPal finds objectionable in any way, um, they can close your account and help themselves to, you know, whatever's remaining in your in, in that account. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And um, they probably will survive this, but uh, uh, it's unbelievably foolish. And um, maybe Dan Shulman will not be president and CEO for much longer. I love that. PayPal, building trust by stealing your money for wrong opinion. <laughs> <laughs> one of the worst uh, slogans of all time. Um, but that's all our main story. Shall I just quickly read our ad here, Toby? Because we're so grateful to get adverts. So if you've found the world a depressing and dystopian place in recent years, perhaps now is the time for a therapeutic laugh. The new COVID spoof, busting anti-vax myths, seriously expert arguments for the COVID deniers in your life is now available on Amazon. Its supposed author is the fictitious Professor Oshin McCamadorn, which means Oshin, son of stupid in the Irish language, a man who is a mix of all the worst COVID experts we've had to suffer in recent times. For him, the vaccine is definitely a vaccine because it self-identifies as one and it's vaccine-phobic to suggest otherwise. Sweden's no-lockdown approach was nothing other than the sad descent of a former liberal utopia into a far-right nightmare. And the Great Reset will leave us all utterly delirious with joy by 2030. Laughter is an excellent anecdote to tyranny, and this satire will put a smile back on even the most jaded face. To get your copy, head to Amazon now. We'll put links in the show notes. That's busting anti-vax myths, seriously expert arguments for the COVID deniers in your life. Okay, now let's go over to regular Daily Skeptic contributor Noah Carl to find out our chances of getting blown up in a nuclear war. All right, I'm here with Daily Skeptic contributor Noah Carl to find out about nuclear war and if we're all going to be obliterated. So, Noah, there was this very interesting sort of flowchart I saw on Twitter that said we had a one in six chance 
of nuclear war. And I'm no expert, but that seemed a little bit high to me as a layman. What do you think? Yeah, it does seem high. And and I think too high, but it's still worth taking into account. The uh, guy who put it together seems to be some kind of expert on existential risk. Uh, and, and a lot of people took him seriously in that the tweet in question got about 30,000 likes and was responded to by Elon Musk, who, who of course recently called for de-escalation in the conflict. But the way he gets to his 30%, his excuse me, his one in six figure is by multiplying three probabilities that, that he came up with, i.e. subjective estimates of the likelihood of certain events. And the key one is that he believes there's a 30% chance that Russia will use a tactical nuclear weapon during the war in Ukraine, i.e. over the next one to two years, say. And the other two probabilities are the probability conditional on that, that the West will respond in some way that is to Russia's detriment, say, by sinking its Black Sea fleet, and then conditional on that, that Russia will launch further nuclear weapons, possibly at the West itself. Multiplying the three numbers he gives in the article gets you to one in six. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So the 30% chance of tactical nukes doesn't sound great. Because when you hear tactical nukes, you like to imagine, oh, they're just tactical. They're just little ones. But it's been basically explained that even, well, by Biden, amongst other people, even if you use these so-called tactical nukes, it's still basically mutually assured destruction anyway. Well, uh, not necessarily mutually assured destruction because a tactical nuke wouldn't cause a, an explosion that, that could you know, bring about nuclear winter. But what Matt Tegmark argues in his article is that it would prompt a response from the West, which would in turn prompt a response from Russia, which would lead to mutually assured destruction or at least widespread destruction. Yeah, that's, that was my understanding of it. And what did you think about Biden's comments? Did they help or hinder when he, he was saying that this is, this is the most threat we've been under since the, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I thought was a strange comment. I mean, he said it at a fundraiser privately. It probably wasn't supposed to leak. What I thought was stupid about it is that during the Cuban Missile Crisis, if you've seen that film, 13 Days, which is most of my research into it, they did everything they could to suppress what was happening because, so as to not escalate tensions. There's a part in the movie, I don't know if this literally happened, where Kennedy's aide calls up a, a guy in the army who's just done a reconnaissance mission and who's been shot at. And he says, you weren't shot at, those were bird strikes. And he's like, what? He's like, trust me, they were sparrows. And the point is, let's not let this escalate. But it seems mm. to me Biden making these comments actually does the opposite and escalates it. What do you think to that? Yeah, it's not clear exactly what his intention is. And of course, it's not clear exactly whether any of Biden's behavior reflects you know, strategic thinking on his part or, or uh, something else, given his age. Uh, the New York Times described his comments as highly unusual for any US president. One possibility, I guess, is that he was trying to sort of signal to other US officials and, and politicians and decision makers that we need to de-escalate, or at least we need to consider the possibility of de-escalating. Another possibility is just that he was saying it to portray Putin in a negative light, i.e. this man's bringing us closer to nuclear war. Don't exactly know. But it's it's certainly concerning that a U.S. president would say that. Yeah, I thought it was mad. The only sensible part of it seemed to me when Biden said we need to give Putin some kind of off ramp, as in some kind of way of getting out of this while saving face. I mean, do you think there's? I, mean, I don't want to grill you if you're not an expert on this, but is there a way out of this war 
that, that's that's not incredibly destructive. I mean, when people want to find ways out of it, people like Peter Hitchens, they get called appeasers. And people talk about, we need to win this. Trust is like, we need to win. Ukraine can win, must win, will win. But if it is like the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I don't know if that really is a good analogy, then can it actually be won or just averted? Yeah, I think that's the that's the really important question. In his analysis that we just discussed, Tegmark argues that if you if Russia ends up losing or a situation arises in which it looks like Russia is about to lose, that's when it would most plausibly use a tactical nuke in order to either send a signal that we're really serious or, or to try and achieve a particular objective on the battlefield. And if it does that, of course, ever not of course, but it would be very likely that everyone would lose. So the alternative is some kind of outcome that doesn't involve widespread destruction slash nuclear war, which would be either a, a Vietnam-style outcome where Russia just withdraws and accepts defeat. That seems unlikely for, or at least, if the chance of that happening without nuclear war is sufficiently high, then it's good, but it doesn't seem that that is the case. Hence, it, we may be looking more, more plausibly at an outcome like a Korea-style frozen conflict, a peace deal, possibly, or just a simmering war that goes on for years and sort of burgeons and then cools and then burgeons and then cools, perhaps like the uh, dispute between India and Pakistan in Kashmir. I think uh, with low confidence that Korea-style outcome is the most plausible, I think at some point they're probably going to just accept that some of the territory belongs to Russia and some of it belongs to Ukraine, not necessarily the current map, but... Uh, a non-zero part of Ukraine will still be controlled by Russia at the end and, and, and both sides will accept that. But it will be possibly seen as a defeat for Russia since it won't have achieved all its objectives. What did you think to the sort of jokiness that was going on, the sort of online bants from the Ukrainian official government account when they said sick burn when they blew up the Kerch Bridge and similar things? To me, I find it very bizarre not just the official accounts, but the general tone on Twitter feels to me sometimes like people are sort of seeing it as a game or they, they're so used to living online that they don't think about the actual reality of nuclear war. They say things like, we, we can't, we've got to win this and we can't back down. All these kind of mad comments that just seem completely divorced from reality. What, do you have any take on that? Yeah, I would agree with your assessment. Uh, I mean, it's, it's understandable that private individuals on Twitter would say things like sick burn about you know, a, a, an objective of their side be, having been achieved. But the fact that a government account would say it is definitely bizarre. As, as one person put it, it looks like 21-year-old you know, sorority girls are running social media accounts for, for major countries now. Yeah, that, that phenomenon where the intern gets on the account and posts something mad. <laughs> yeah. But now it leads to nuclear war. As I've noted in one of my other articles, it seems plausible that Twitter has been adjusting its algorithms to promote tweets and accounts favorable to Ukraine's war effort. Um, and it's been blocking Russian accounts. That's you know not necessarily a bad thing, except that it means those of us in, in third countries don't necessarily get a wholly accurate representation of what's going on. And we ought to get, we ought to get both sides. We ought to hear the Russian propaganda as well yeah. so that we can make it, Inform decisions about whether we want to support our government, what our governments are doing. Okay, I agree. Just lastly, is there anything either that I've missed, or is there a conclusion you had looking at that Tegnol diagram, weighing up all the information? How likely do you think it is 
Or, or if there's anything else I've missed that you'd like to add about this impending doom. Yeah, so he's, he's claims there's a 30% chance, as I mentioned, that uh, Russia will use a tactical nuke. And I think that's too high. I don't know exactly what the, what the true chance is, but some, there are some other figures that one can appeal to, such as figures from prediction markets, which aggregate the beliefs or expectations of many different people who've been asked to uh, bet money or stake their reputations on their predictions. And the metaculous prediction market gives a figure of, what was it, uh, 7%, which is much lower, but it's, it's still non-trivial. I mean, it's almost one in 10. And there's, there's another prediction market uh, called um, Manifold, which yields a higher figure of 19%. Secondly, one can look at super forecasters. These are briefly people who've demonstrated over months or years that they have a much better capacity to predict the course of geopolitical affairs than the average. I, they've been asked to make predictions in the past and they've gotten many more right than chance or many more right than the rest of us. And super forecasters, according to an article that I just read by uh, Tom Chivers, are predicting uh, that the ch- the chance of a nuclear bomb going off is is non-trivial. I think I think it's I think the figure he quotes is nine percent. So the just from those three figures, the seven percent, nine percent, and nineteen percent, averaging them, it's you know like about twelve percent or something. So there's more than a one in ten chance, according to people who are reasonably well informed and have shown a good track record. <laughs> one in ten doesn't seem like a acceptable risk to me and i'm sure it doesn't to many others as well yes i would deem that a non-acceptable risk okay so i was hoping for a bit of a white pill there i wouldn't say we went that far but we got it down slightly from 30 percent to a sort of 12 so okay well at least we've got a rational overview of it it's i wouldn't say it's reassuring but it's slightly gone i mean if i had to give my subjective judgment i would probably say slightly lower than 12 um just just because i think the uh the consequences for for Putin would be very bad in that he would probably be rebuffed by his allies or the states that have remained neutral, like India and China. And as people on Twitter have pointed out, it's not clear how effective tactical nukes would be on the battlefield due to the nature of the warfare. I relatively few troops dispersed over large areas couldn't necessarily destroy that much equipment with one tactical nuke. You might be able to destroy a base slightly more effectively than with cruise missiles, but you wouldn't get that much purchase from them. It would more be for sending a signal that we're serious. But yeah, I don't necessarily have a positive message. <laughs> Fair <laughs> other enough. Than the, other than that, I think it's less likely than Mac, than Max Tegmark. One thing you said there was that you, you reminded me of, uh, we were on our show, Headliners on GB News, and Andrew Doyle said, but it would be political suicide for Putin. I'm thinking, but wouldn't it be actual suicide? I mean, if it's a nuclear exchange, do you really care about how it's going to look for you in the next fake election? <laughs> I mean, yeah. what, I don't know. Does, does that matter? Does he care about the politics of it at that point? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, John Mearsheimer, who, who many people discount, but who I think has been reasonably prescient going back to all the way to 2014, has just has said that the war in Ukraine is existential for Putin and the class of Russian elites that he represents, and uh, so so from his point of view, he he cannot lose. I losing in the in the sense of watching his army capitulate on the battlefield and losing all the territory is just not acceptable to him. So he's gonna he could plausibly do whatever it takes to prevent that from happening if it looks like it might. Hmm. And then you're back to the only scenario being one of his generals or whatever 
someone usurps him or unseats him, which I've heard, you know, could happen. But do you think that's likely? Again, yeah, I don't really know enough to we say. We need a percentage on that. <laughs> Sorry, did you ask for a percentage? Yeah, I was only joking there. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly. But I do know that people with greater specific knowledge than I have on this subject believe it's plausible he would be replaced by someone just as bellicose as yeah. he is or more so. I, he, has, he has just as many or more critics from the hawkish side of the spectrum than he does from the dovish side within Russia. So there's no guarantee that if he's replaced, it'll be Alex Navalny or someone like that. Right. Good point. I tried to be optimistic there. It didn't quite work out. But um, <laughs> thanks for that, Noah. That was very informative. I feel better informed on our impending disaster. So hopefully we'll hear from you again in future. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, I'm back with Toby and let's do pros and cons. Our section that is not completely worked out because it's not quite clear if the pro is that the Conservative Party are doing something conservative or just something good. But I say those two are basically synonymous and therefore whether the cons are unconservative things or just bad things. But I'd like to give my pro this week as Liz Truss's announcement that she is the first comprehensive school PM and the media haters claim that she wasn't. I claim that she is. I wrote an article about it for Conservative Woman, which you can check out, where I say that, yes, she is the first comprehensive school prime minister, with the slight exception of Theresa May, whose school turned into a comp when she was there, which is a kind of technicality. But the media were having a field day claiming Gordon Brown went to a comprehensive. No, he didn't. It was selective. He was also put ahead two years in a special experimental fast track scheme. That's not a comprehensive school, guys. They don't put you in a fast stream, I can tell you. They put you in the slow stream. I went to a comprehensive got the third highest grade in the country on my history level, got A's. No one said go to Oxbridge. No one said anything like that. We were told we were scum. And it, 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 you guys know, if you haven't been to a competitive school, it is an achievement for Liz Truss to get there. It doesn't matter what she does now. Some people are commenting on Combo and, oh, you know, Truss is rubbish, blah, blah. I'm not commenting on her manifesto. I'm simply saying it is an achievement to get to Prime Minister from a competitive school. And that's what she did. Uh, Toby, any comment on that? Or do you want to give your own pro? Yeah, well... The only thing I'd say is that um, it doesn't feel like um, such a landmark because John Major, of course, went to a secondary modern. So in a sense, that's that's sort of more of a, you know, breakthrough, more of um, something to boast about if you're a conservative than simply having the first prime minister that went to comprehensive. But nonetheless, it's good that it should be the conservative party and not the Labour Party that boasts the first PM to go to a comp. I went, of course, I went to two comps and then I was in the last grammar school year of a school which has become a comp. I'm going to have to check out more about John Major School because you've kind of hit, hit me with a curveball there, but I'm going to check that claim and get back to it. Maybe he did go, and if he did go to the secondary model, that is interesting because, of course, the conventional wisdom is that grammars were great, but secondary models were awful, so it wasn't worth having grammars. Peter Hitchens recently argued, and I believe has a forthcoming book about it, that not only were Grammar's obviously better than comps, but even secondary moderns were better than comps once they started doing proper exams after their first 10 years. So That's a controversial claim. I'll be interested to um, read that book. Uh, but it yeah, is. Chris, uh, Peter's long been uh, a tub thumper for grammar schools. And of course, one potential pro is that um, this government will bring back grammars. To do that, they'd have to repeal the 1998 Education Act, which made the creation of any more grammar schools in England and Wales unlawful. Um, but, and you know, do they have the political capital to do that? Are they really going to spend what little political capital they have 
on bringing back grammars, it remains to be seen. No, they won't do it, but it's always a vote winner to, to say it. And I go into it more in my article, which you can check out. But basically, I'm always annoyed because it took away a generation of social mobility. Well, there was a generation of social mobility. That was taken away from my generation. My dad got to go to grammar school from a poor background. They took that away. We had people like Melvin Bragg, Dennis Potter, plucked from working class backgrounds to achieve great things. And they took that all away from us. Who took it away? The left, people like Brian Simon, a literal communist. And you can research all that. But what is your pro, Toby? Do you even have one? Um, uh, do I have a pro? Um, yes. Um, the fact that Arlene Foster, former leader of the DUP, is on the political honours list, um, I think is a pro because it suggests that Liz Truss is serious about pressing ahead with scrapping the Northern Irish uh, protocol, um, uh, because otherwise, of course, Arlene Foster wouldn't have accepted a peerage. And I think she still made her taking it up conditional upon the Northern Ireland protocol being scrapped. And of course, the um, Liz Truss's government are facing a fight in the House of Lords um, over the NIP, scrapping the NIP. Um, and uh, But she at least, uh, I think she seems, you know, she hasn't rode back on that. So um, I think that's a pro. I mean, I feel we're clutching at straws a little, but okay. So for the cons, there's so many possibilities for cons because the entire party is basically falling apart, which you could say is a pro if we manage to create some better party, which seems incredibly unlikely at this point. But so that's probably a big con. I mean, Grant Shapps was offering to be caretaker PM. So I think that's a that's a con. That's when you're scraping the barrel a little bit. Your old mate, Michael Gove, was called sadistic. I think we should have a Michael Gove update every week. Since we did our last update where we talked about Gove's early life and whether he should be a stand-up comedian, someone sent me a link, and you've probably seen it, but he was in a movie with Christopher Lee. Have you seen that? He, he no, actually acted. Oh, it, oh, it's very interesting. He acted, and um, there's a scene where... The, uh, they're, they're playing cricket and the ball goes into uh, Christopher Lee's nads. <laughs> and Michael Gove is there to react in the movie. I just need to check what it's called because uh, I didn't know we were going to talk about it. But yeah, A Feast at Midnight. A Feast at Midnight, Gove's acting debut. He's a complicated man, that Gove. But he was called sadistic. That could be another con, the sort of general Gove uh, contretemps. The Connor Burns fiasco, I don't know which to go with, really. They're all cons. Daniel Granger's treatment after he said Birmingham was a dump. I mean, I, I think I'd probably have to go with Shap's offering to be caretaker PM. <laughs> when, the fact that you're in that situation must be a con. What's your con, Toby? Yeah, well, um, I said, I think, um, last week that I, I wasn't going to come up with any cons because I'm lobbying the government to bring in an amendment to one of the bills going through Parliament to make it harder for companies like PayPal to platform people like me um, but I will say that I was disappointed that um, uh, Liz Truss seems to have changed her mind about appointing Antonia Romeo if that's how you pronounce it um, the new permanent secretary at the treasury so she was the perm sec at um, what DFID um, um, and uh, that's where or, or no, I think the Department of Trade and that's where she got to know um, Liz Truss when she was um, the Trade Secretary um, and uh, Liz and apparently Quasi were very impressed by her and you know in the teeth of opposition from the rather stuffy mandarins at the 
treasury who think of themselves as you know by far the best civil servants in the civil service she was going to appoint this this woman who supposedly is a kind of whirlwind of creative destruction going to be a breath of fresh air challenge uh, treasury orthodoxy uh, and and they and, and this came on the uh, on the heels of sacking tom scholar who was the perm sec at uh, uh, Her Majesty's Treasury. Um, so it seemed like, you know, they were going to do something interesting there, shake up the Treasury a bit, try and um, reduce the clutches of the Treasury over the rest of the government. It really is the beating heart of the blob. Um, but they've rode back on that. And um, this week, a U-turn was announced and Antonia is no longer going to be the new permanent secretary at the Treasury. Instead, it's going to be James Bowler, who is very much a Treasury bod. I think he spent something like his 20-year civil service career in the Treasury. So very much a safe pair of hands. It looks like the Treasury has got its way. The blob is back. And um, it struck me as there's a bit of a contrast here between Margaret Thatcher and Liz Truss, in spite of Liz's supposed admiration for uh, Margaret Thatcher. Mar- one of Margaret Thatcher's famous phrases was, the ladies not for turning. There is no alternative, Tina. And it feels like more like, you know, this Truss's motto is, there are many alternatives, tamer. Um, so I think that, that's got to be, that's not, it's, it's, it, you know, I hope that she'd be a more convincing Margaret Thatcher tribute act, tribute act than she's turning out to be. Second you turn in something like a week. So uh, not great. Reminds me of another quote, weak, feeble. <laughs> that great Thatcher quote. Um, yes, and Antonia Romeo, I looked her up and um, she was known as, well, I thought it was the disruptor. Apparently it's a disruptor. I thought the disruptor is even cooler. <laughs> Let's bring in the disruptor. So yeah, disappointing because <laughs> we definitely need some disruption in the party. All right, that's pros and cons. Now let's do everyone's favorite section. It's peak woke. So my peak woke selection this week, I'm torn between two, I'll be honest with you. One of them is the Guardian picking up Liz Truss's wearing of a similar outfit to a fictional fascist. Liz Truss wore a fascist dress that was worn by Emma Thompson in some rubbish BBC thing I'm never going to watch. And the Guardian went mental about this because they're insane. And that has to be peak woke. I mean, why did Liz Truss wear the same outfit as a fictional fascist? That was the actual headline. I I can only assume it was a a dog whistle to fictional people everywhere. So that's definitely a contender. My other one, rather more disturbing, a demisexual person, yes, that's a thing, in the Navy got away with assault. So a royal engineer has been cleared of sexually assaulting a male colleague after telling the court he could not have done it because he is demisexual. Now, to me, demi means, well, not just to me, demi does mean half. So if you're only half sexual, you think the last thing you'd be is going around assaulting people. But he used this and he said that because of that, he simply couldn't be assaulting people. So Abel Seaman, ignoring all jokes there, Tris Smythe, had told the hearing he was innocent as he, his demisexuality means he had, has to have a strong emotional bond with someone before you could consider sexual contact. One, that's pretty normal. That's lots of people. That just means you're not a, not a psycho. Uh, two, he told the court he even struggled to kiss his female fiance passionately at the start of their relationship, let alone a colleague. Okay, you're gay. I mean, that's what it, that's what it he, he, I think I'm pretty sure the guy he assaulted, he sort of came up to him and kissed him on the neck and stuff, was a guy. It's like, you're gay. You, there's no such thing as a demisexual and you did assault this guy. So that's another strong uh, attempt at peak woke. What, what, what are yours, Toby? Yeah, I, mean, I, I was thinking today... Um, people who describe themselves as non-binary, and that's the thing too. Um, 
are very binary in their thinking, aren't they? I mean, it would be great if someone who was sexually non-binary um, uh, uh, was also non-binary in their thinking. But often people who identify as non-binary think about the conflict between gender critical feminists and trans rights activists in a rather binary way. Wouldn't it be great if in addition to being non-binary, they were intellectually non-binary too, and their thinking about these issues was quite nuanced and counterintuitive and quite subtle. But it Yeah, isn't. and John Cleese made exactly that point. He, he talked about binary thinking and i mentioned it in my article i said we're entering the the era of the of the non-binary thinking now again we need to get out of binary thinking so yeah good point okay maybe that's where i got it from yeah i'm just (laughs) stealing stealing your line um so uh yeah my my, i've got two peak works so let's start with bird college which is a an arts focused college of further education in south london which boasts amongst its famous alumni mel c uh one of the spice girls um and um a whistleblower, in fact, contacted the Free Speech Union to complain that the uh, principal of Bird College had um, written a an all-staff email urging them to use a template in future. And it, it, it wasn't presented as an option. It was presented very much as an order from the big man. Um, and the template... Uh, not only included a declaration of your gender pronouns, but also the pride flag and the BLM flag. And yeah, the whistleblower was understandably quite concerned that um, this would require them to endorse an array of um, ideological positions that they didn't actually hold. Um, And uh, we thought that was probably a breach of various laws and wrote to the principal of Bird College, tipped off the mail, and he very quickly retreated and said, oh, no, no, it was only ever intended to be optional. It's a a misunderstanding. Yeah, right. Anyway, so uh, minor victory there. But I think uh, it seemed to be, I mean, I've heard of, you know, we've often gone to bat for people who don't want to declare their gender pronouns in the workplace um, and won a couple of victories there. But this seemed to be, this is the most over over the top um, examples of kind of woke demands being made by chief executives, principals, vice chancellors. Not only do you have to declare your gender pronouns, but you also have to declare your allegiance, not just to Pride, but to BLM too, which is quite something given that BLM wants to dismantle capitalism and the nuclear family and defund the police. Um, uh, But my peak woke, that's not peak woke, my peaker woke um, is um, the University of Westminster's, um, I think it was the University of Westminster Students' Union um, to celebrate Black History Month has put on a series of events. And at some of those events, white people aren't welcome. So in the interests of promoting anti-racism, um, they they have said you can't come to some of these events because of the color of your skin, which is the kind of glaring contradiction that you have to be, you know, pretty ideologically blinkered not to spot. But of course, these people are very ideologically blinkered, um, and apparently, you know, for those for that handful of students at the University of Westminster who aren't woke, it is known as um, Wokeminster University. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that story um, has been in the Telegraph, followed up by the Mail and the Express. As far as I know, the Student Union of um, University of Wokeminster um, hasn't rode back on that yet, but let's hope they do. Yes, we discussed that one on the telly. We didn't. We missed the Bird College one. I must say I missed that one. That was That's a shocker as well. That, that, that's in the Mail today. So yeah, it's only just... Right. Just oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah, the Westminster one reminded me a bit of Brett Weinstein when he famously was not allowed to come onto the campus of Evergreen College. And uh, it it raised a few red flags in his head that as a Jewish guy, he was being banned from his own college. 
And that pretty much yeah. red-pilled him. Yeah, and there was another example too. Neil Thin, an anthropology lecturer at Edinburgh University, um, he was effectively cancelled. Um, and one of his, his sins were twofold. First of all, he objected to the renaming of Hume Tower because he didn't think that um, David Hume should be cancelled. Um, you wouldn't have thought that would be a controversial point of view, but at the University of Edinburgh, apparently it is. And his second sin was to complain about a similarly racially segregated event at Edinburgh. Um, and, you know, the complaint was, you know, um, if you object to these racially segregated events, you're a racist. Yeah. Which I, is I, some intellectual somersault. It's incredible. It's so woke. You've gone all the way back to Jim Crow. Yeah. I think that might be the winner of peak woke. I mean, it's hard because I'm involved in the contest and I actually have to, I'm adjudicating it as well, but I might give you peak woke for that. And I might give myself weak poke, the booby prize, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe the listener can decide. All right. So, I mean, unless you want to add anything to that, that's most of the show. I just wanted to uh, read a quick review out because we get these amazing reviews and we still have a, a 4.9 average rating, which is incredible and very rare. And this is a great review from, the Byzantium 53, who says, great addition to the non-MSN stable of thoughtful podcasts, thoughtful and measured with impish humor. Peak woke is both hysterical and deeply depressing, as I think we just found. Um, And I really like that review for a reason that no one could possibly know, which is that my uh, teacher, Mrs. Baygott, when I was 10 years old, the the only teacher who really got me, because I had a good time in junior school, I was very popular. It's a secondary school where it all went horrifically wrong in my comprehensive, as I described earlier. And oh, I only hinted at it, but trust me, it was bad. But Mrs. Baygott said in my end of year, whatever it's called, report, that Nick has an impish sense of humor. And I loved that because even at 10, I was making the whole class laugh with my quips. And of course, cut to later becoming a professional stand-up comedian. And I just thought, this person really got me. So it always stayed with me. So impish humor. They might also mean you, of course, Toby, but I- I'm taking that no, impish humor. I think humor they mean you. <laughs> that, reminds me, that reminds me of the opening of that... Um, Eddie Murphy stand-up concert film, um, the name of which escapes me, but it starts with Eddie Murphy as a 10-year-old, kind of um, at a kind of family gathering. Everyone's in hysterics. He's standing on a chair, and then it cuts to him kind of as, you know, at that time, the world's biggest stand-up. So there you are, Nick. Uh, I think we've got the first scene in the autobiographical movie based on your life when you published your best-selling memoir about your um, uh, journey from 10-year-old to stand-up comic to cancel to GB News to <laughs> et cetera. Um, we, yeah, we, we've got the first scene. Um, and cancelled. Uh, yeah, uh, we should encourage um, – yeah, of course, it wasn't really a cancellation. We, we should <laughs> encourage um, our listeners, um, if they enjoy the podcast, to leave reviews. And, um, you know, we, if we like them, um, uh, we will read them out. Um, I think, yeah, I think um, hysterical – but deeply depressing is quite a good catch line um, for the weekly podcast. So maybe we ought to just put that put that somewhere on the on the website. Anyway, um, please do um, uh, subscribe to the Daily Skeptics Daily Email News Roundup, which will arrive in your inboxes at four pm. There's a button to do that on the site. Uh, donate if you can. It only takes five pounds a month, and you can comment to your heart's content beneath the article. It's www.dailyskeptic.org. Absolutely. And if you can, leave a review, as we said, and like the podcast, subscribe, tell a friend. And I'm, I'm allowed to briefly plug my Substack, Toby, or would that Go be on? Plug, pl- plug your Substack. My yeah. Substack is nickdixon, one word, .substack.com for all my articles. Some paid, some free. I'll try and be fair with that. And I think that is everything. So thank you very much. And we'll see you again next week. 